more than a trillion dollars of e-commerce runs over uh, Alibaba's marketplaces. The entire U.S. e-commerce industry is about a trillion dollars. Okay, in today's episode of the Investing City podcast, we had Robert Cantwell on. Robert is the portfolio manager of the Compound Kings ETF, and we just talk stocks today and a few different companies, so please enjoy my conversation with Robert. The following is presented for informational purposes only and is not investment advice. This information must not be relied upon in making any investment decision. Investing City cannot be held responsible for any type of loss incurred by applying any of the information presented. Furthermore, securities discussed in this podcast may be held by Investing City and members thereof. Thank you. Okay, in today's episode of the Investing City podcast, super happy to host Robert Cantwell. So thanks for being here, Robert. Thanks, Ryan. Fun to be with you. Cool. So why don't we start with a little bit about your background? How did you first get interested in investing? Oh, we're going that far back. (laughs) Uh, Well, uh, I think the, the thing that I've always appreciated the most about the investing discipline is that you get to put your money where your mouth is. And it is an industry that has a lot of marketing, a lot of chatter, a lot of media built around it. Uh, but beneath all of that, there are uh, decision makers that are actually allocating capital and they usually start by allocating their own. And when they prove they're good enough at that, they, they earn the right to get to uh, help manage other people's money as well. Uh, and uh, it's a very, I, I view uh, money is a very personal matter. Uh, and I think it is a very um, precious task um, to help others. Um, to you know, help grow the base of wealth over time, uh, and so for me, I, I think it's sort of the values that are associated with people in the investment industry of um, heavily research-driven, uh, ultimately very decisive, uh, even if you know they don't have complete information uh, on an opportunity. And you know, for me, you know, these things were starting to come together when I was in college, and they continue to form, you know, in my early uh, early career. You know, I was fortunate to work at a hedge fund, you know, straight out of college and get thrown right into the fire of it. That's awesome. Um, yeah, so tell us a little bit about, you know, once you had that experience um, and then kind of how, how did that lead to you um, starting Upholdings and then the CTF? So there's um, there's a reason uh, investing is not a, a common or popular uh, undergraduate um, major. Uh, and that has to do with the fact that it is a discipline that is better learned through experience, uh, and, uh, apprenticeship, uh, than it is, um, you know, studying in a classroom. So, uh, for me, and I'll be frank, the first stock I, I ever purchased was European minerals, which was a Kazakhstan based, uh, gold mining, uh, operation. And, uh, I lost, every penny that I invested into that stock. Uh, and uh, the benefit of focusing oneself in owning a single company is you learn a lot because you're along for the ride as a shareholder. Every time the share price moves a little bit, you try to dig in to figure out why. You know, For me at the time, when I was just in the early days of, of learning uh, what went into investing, I had this very simple thesis of, well, gold is worth this. There's that much gold in the ground. The equity price of the company is X. 
And if X is less than the gold in the ground, I am buying uh, this asset below intrinsic value. That was a very simplistic, you know, understanding of how investing worked back back in the day for me. Uh, and lo and behold, uh, as I learned from being a shareholder, uh, that formula that I just described uh, excludes the cost of extraction of gold. And for a company that was struggling to get deep enough to where the gold was and to know exactly what were proven versus unproven reserves, turned out to be a very costly exercise. And this was a company that ultimately ended up engaging in derivatives around gold because the price of gold kept going up and their stock kept going down. And the board of directors said, oh, well, hang on a second, let's at least hedge gold out here. And the biggest mistake they made was they hedged gold at a price at which it kept running up. And there was a ticking time bomb on their hedge because their hedge expired after two and a half years. So if they hadn't yet gotten gold out of the ground to start creating cash flow at the company to unwind the hedges, they basically bankrupted the equity shareholders. So uh, this, it's an experience that I don't mind sharing uh, because there are a lot of things about uh, a poorly structured board, uh, poor risk management you know, on behalf of the operators, uh, valuing a company on its assets versus its cash flow. Uh, and there's a heck of a lot of things that come out of you know, focusing deeply on a single business. So that was the beginning uh, of my investment career. Uh, after that, um, this was just something I did personally on the side. Um, and it's also why I don't have any problem with individuals taking their own stakes in companies, uh, just so long as they stick with them. And so long as they're reasonably concentrated in the bets they're making, because if you're not, you're not going to learn anything. Um, so I, anyway, that was a personal experience. But I started my, uh, my career started out um, really with Elevation Partners. It was a private equity firm. I was there for about five years. I was with a long, short um, uh, internet-focused uh, hedge fund for another couple of years. Uh, after that, I uh, helped uh, build a uh, direct-to-consumer online lifestyle brand. And uh, the, the cool thing about, you know, seeing sort of the power of the web to, to build a new brand and deliver a higher quality product than is available through the physical world, I was able to kind of merge the two experiences of, of running an institutional uh, investment fund uh, that is distributed direct to investors. And, you know, that is what has sort of fed the formation of upholdings. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And thanks for sharing that first investment story. I think it's always interesting to hear that um, for investors just because, and I like how you mentioned if people stay pretty concentrated, then you your pace of learning is actually much faster. Uh, I think that is a really under, under underrated um, kind of piece of investing. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I took the, uh, the Warren Buffett punch card strategy very li literally when I was 21. And I thought, all right, I'm working in finance. I'm going to get a bonus every year. So I'm just going to put all of my bonus into one stock every year. And after 10 years, like I'll have 10 stocks. Uh, I found that his punch card thing did not work in practice, but I did learn a lot by trying it out as a strategy. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so yeah, take us through a little bit of kind of your investment philosophy and what sort of businesses are your favorite? Sure. So our, our strategy that we invest in is uh, Compound Kings. And uh, a Compound King is a company that is self-funding. So if you're a public company, for the most part, if you're having to tap public markets for additional funds to keep growing your company, I have 
generally very serious questions about your underlying business model. Uh, because especially in this day and age at the, the valuation and size of company that is a public company, companies used to go public at about a hundred million dollar valuation. You know, you're now seeing, now you can't find a company less than $2 billion uh, going public uh, that has any sort of meaningful runway in front of it. So the first, the first thing that's important is, is the company funding itself either through its own uh, operating cash flow or from being able to um, uh, finance uh, assets, um, hard assets within the company. And then the second question is, well, does the company have lots of great opportunities to deploy that capital? So I think of, I, I am a federally registered investment advisor, you know, through upholdings. Um, and I am what's called the investment manager, but I actually believe it is the companies that we are invested in that are doing the investing. They're the ones hiring employees. They're the ones building infrastructure. They're the ones, you know, considering whether or not they're going to acquire, you know, competitors or upstarts. Um, so it's, it, there's a lot of study that goes into, well, where is the company actually spending its money? And every single one of those things that I just mentioned are all investments that the company is making. And you want to study carefully to see if the company that's deploying your capital is doing so in a way that is earning you at least as good of a return than if you were to just own the S&P 500. So using Facebook as a rough example, I believe that Facebook uh, building its own data centers, uh, building its own content moderation policies are things that are going to widen their competitive moat over time and make it more and more difficult for other networks to compete with them. So as an investor that sees them growing in the digital um, performance ad space, uh, I actually really like the capital that they're deploying because I, I see lots of potential cash flow generation in the future against the investments that they're making today. Yeah, I think that's, that's super interesting. And thanks for bringing up Facebook as an example. So if you were to kind of teach somebody how to assess a company's investments and actually getting into the nitty gritty, like you mentioned, you think that you see uh, like a great potential for cash flow down in the future for Facebook. Um, how would you kind of teach somebody to really dig in and assess that? Uh, just to clarify, uh, you're asking how to assess the potential for cash generation in the future? Yeah, it, for specifically companies uh, making specific investments. So if you want to have an idea of the uh, type of cash a company can generate in the future, uh, sometimes there are uh, early hints in their uh, income statement or in their cash flow statement uh, that demonstrate the potential to be a big cash flow generator in the future. Uh, one thing that we, we see in general is that companies can uh, scale uh, product and research and development and general administrative and working capital usually pretty well. Uh, it is really difficult for companies to scale marketing expenses. So a big red flag for us is usually companies that have a disproportionately large uh, marketing budget and really high revenue growth because they, they tell the world, well, don't worry, as we get to scale, there's gonna be scale in our marketing budget. And what ends up happening is um, as they attempt to scale that marketing budget, their revenue growth tends to uh, slow pretty dramatically. 
And the, the slower a company grows, that, that affects the, the multiple uh, that you can put on the business. Uh, one of my favorite statistics I look to look at for growth companies is to take their uh, gross profit and subtract their marketing budget from it. And so with growth companies, these you know, businesses growing anywhere from 10 to 55, 0% a year, I'll look at uh, how their equity valuation compares to their gross profit minus uh, marketing stat because that's really the kind of the flow through uh, dynamics for the business. And in, in this age that we're in where companies are investing in software engineers instead of uh, you know, laying rail, um, a lot of CapEx has moved from the cash flow statement into the income statement. And so uh, net income on an income statement is one of the most worthless uh, stats for, for evaluating you know, a business for investment. So uh, yeah, I, I shared the gross profit minus marketing, which is a bit of a generalized approach, but ultimately your goal with any individual company should be to understand what lines that the company is using are investments versus what lines are the costs of simply operating the business that they're in. And every industry is a little bit different. Every company is a little bit different. Uh, so you have to build your own version uh, of, of what that business looks like from a regular operating margin perspective versus, you know, where are their investment dollars flowing across all their various statements? Yeah, that's super helpful. And I love that you bring that up kind of, you know, uh, thinking about maintenance CapEx versus growth CapEx. It's almost like that's moving into the income statement. So now it's maintenance OPEX versus growth OPEX and kind of ferreting that out. So I think that's actually uh, really profound. Um, so that's a much cleaner way of saying it. Now <laughs> <laughs> you're just taking what you said. Uh, yeah, really interesting. Uh, I, I like also how you brought up gross profit, subtract out sales and marketing, because um, it really is kind of a testament to uh, just, you know, how much the, the product by itself is kind of um, being propagated amongst consumers. So yeah, it's really helpful. Any other thoughts on there? Do you want to move on to talk a little bit about China, which I know is a geography you're uh, pretty excited about? I, you know, I, I, I am fascinated to learn. Uh, I've, you know, I was a private hedge fund manager for two years. I'm now a, a public uh, portfolio ETF manager. So uh, I, I went from having six investor opinions to now I have 700 uh, different opinions from from investors um, that have uh, have partnered with me, uh, but I am I'm crowdsourcing this one. I am trying to understand why uh, U.S. investors are so hesitant to invest in China-based companies. Uh, I hear a lot about oh, well, the Chinese government. It, I mean, from my seat, I see the U.S. government getting way more involved with the growth of our. Facebook has not been allowed to acquire another company for basically the last two years. China has not put an acquisition moratorium on any of its market leaders. They do graft probes. They do all sorts of, you know, let's take a look into their business. They're studying Ant Financial to say, hold on a second. You can't read someone's credit card statement and be their mortgage lender. They're putting in place, in place basic privacy, consumer privacy uh, regulations that are really moving them closer to the U.S., whereas the U.S. is sitting here and saying, well, hold on, we're scared about our biggest companies. Uh, so, you know, Amazon's going to have unions. Uh, Facebook can't acquire other companies anymore. And frankly, I see a lot more uh, uh, 
potentially negative involvement for shareholders uh, from at least what is being chattered about in the U.S. government than I do in China. So I think there's a very big disconnect uh, at this moment in time uh, against what is being reported in American press as to um, what is happening in China with the companies there versus the government's involvement um, against what is the underlying fundamentals of the companies there, which is it's really outstanding. I mean, their best growth companies are doing better than our best growth companies. And so it just, it just seems completely silly to me uh, not to have a meaningful uh, piece of your portfolio invested there. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, a lot of still just the perception around Chinese companies. I mean, back in the day, there were a lot of, you know, Chinese frauds. And I think that people still have that kind of fresh in your mind. And then you have um, sort of, like the reporting on the Jack Ma story and everything. Um, like, do you have any thoughts on those two, two things in particular? Again, this is American press stuff. Like, you think there haven't been frauds in the US? And, you know, the US will take a couple of fraud stories and then brand China as a fraudulent country. Uh, one of my analysts who was, uh, he, he was born and raised in China and he, he came to the uh, States for, uh, for university and he was one of the first interns that worked with us. And I, I asked him, I said, hey, you know, the U.S. has a lot of accusations against China. Uh, you guys cheat, uh, you know, you do unfair competition, you, you needlessly, you know, get involved in the private sector. I was like, what is like China, like the inside China view when you guys speak negatively about the United States? And he goes, oh, hypocrites. <laughs> I, thought, I thought that was a very... Uh, polite and succinct way of saying, um, you know, when, when you begin your list of accusations, you know, look inward and, you know, make sure that these are not, uh, that these are standards that you're also, you know, holding yourself to. Totally. I, I, yeah, I think one other thing that maybe U.S. based investors are kind of worry about is just like, the disconnect of like staying up to date with all you know competition because Chinese capitalism is a whole nother beast. I mean, some of these companies are fierce competitors. So how do you kind of stay on top of the competitive landscape within China? Uh, again, I do think that there is some uh, misreporting over the the level of competition there because their Alibaba has more market share of e-commerce in China than Amazon does in the United States. And correspondingly, Alibaba has higher cash flow margins than Amazon does in the United States. And so I think, I think the, uh, the matter can be argued a number of different ways. Uh, there are less regulatory standards in China, which does, which both invites more competition, but also allows incumbents and competitive modes to get wider than if there were regulation. So it, it works a little bit at, um, at both extremes. Uh, there's, a, um, uh, there's one sort of hybrid Eastern Western uh, reporting periodical that I recommend to a lot of people, Kaichin uh, Global, C-A-I-X-I-N. Uh, I, I really view the sort of the quality of their reporting as kind of on par with what Bloomberg does. Uh, in the rest of the world. And I think they do a pretty pretty darn good balanced uh, view of here's where the government's getting involved. Uh, here are you know uh, competitive sets that are happening between various companies. And what's nice is, I mean, there's enough uh, hybrid uh, English uh, Chinese speakers that you know we get to talk to experts all the time. 
We talked to people that have worked at Alibaba, talked to people that worked at JD, talked to people that have worked at TikTok and hear from them what's happening. Um, so I, I just think the, that social media has connected the world um, so easily that it, obviously with coronavirus, I haven't been able to travel there, uh, but that has not stopped us uh, from getting to talk to people that are on the ground there. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll definitely link to that publication in the show notes. So thanks for sharing that. Um, so you want to dive in a little to Alibaba and why it's one of your top positions? Sure. Well, there's a, uh, there's a, there's a funny moment uh, in, the, in the market uh, at, at, at this time where because you have a few of these large leaders, Alibaba is not one company. Alibaba has its marketplaces. It has uh, a large investment interest in Ant Group. It has a cloud infrastructure uh, business. And each of those businesses has uh, different uh, addressable markets. They have uh, different customer profiles. And so when you're owning a stock uh, like Alibaba, you're actually owning a, a handful of different companies. So when I look at it in the portfolio, I actually look at it as three, almost four different securities. You know, the fourth being that they also manage uh, an investment book. So the, the interesting thing about a business like that is that that business is so diversified that I'm able to hold a much more concentrated position uh, in my portfolio. Uh, so if, if there's 25 stocks in our portfolio right now, Alibaba is really four companies, Berkshire Hathaway is four companies, Facebook is two and a half companies, uh, and there's a couple of other conglomerates like that that we own. So really we have a portfolio that looks more like 35 to 40 companies than just 25. It just so happens that multiples of those companies happen to be reflected through an individual security. So go, going into Alibaba specifically, I, I, I sort of previewed you know, what their market share is. To, just to appreciate the sheer enormity of their marketplace's business alone, more than a trillion dollars of e-commerce runs over uh, Alibaba's marketplaces. The entire US e-commerce industry is about a trillion dollars. So there is no company in the US that you can even compare to the scale of, um, of what flows over their platforms. And that's just the marketplace's business. Uh, you then have the, the, the cloud infrastructure business, which is really their, their AWS, which I think the jury is still out on whether or not cloud infrastructure is a great business long-term. Uh, it could, it could long-term turn into sort of very competitive, high CapEx intensity wireless networks. Uh, but for the time being, you're seeing a lot of rapid um, uh, um, margin expansion. Uh, you're also seeing relatively high market share players. Uh, and again, there they have more than comfortable have comfortably more than thirty percent market share. And then the third piece is uh, Ant Financial. There's the concerns over the Chinese uh, government turning them into a financial holding company. Uh, I'm not really uh, sure that the long-term um, value of Ant Financial has changed meaningfully from the government getting involved in regulating it. Uh, banking uh, and consumer finance transactions are historically extremely regulated uh, industries. Uh, and I think it's, uh, it's something that's just got to get, uh, to get worked through. So there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of reasons, uh, to follow a company like Alibaba and because they have the market leaders, we don't have to waste our time drudging through all of the non-market leaders to try to assemble a portfolio that gets us into cloud infrastructure, into payments and into marketplaces because it's all just available for us in a single stock. Oh, and, and 
this business trades for a little bit less than 25 times free cash flow. That's just, that is a rare find. Definitely. Um, so I'd love to hear your thoughts on some of the competitors like JD and Pinduoduo. Um, like what are your thoughts on their, their strength relative, Ali, relative to Alibaba? Uh, so JD we like, it's another company in our portfolio. I, I view it as a completely different business model. So uh, Alibaba is a marketplace like an Etsy uh, where uh, individuals or small businesses are, are encouraged to set up a store and, and operate over the marketplace. Uh, JD is a first party retailer. So they are like the largest possible uh, first party retailer um, that you can really uh, invest in, at least on, from, from the online standpoint. So JD, interestingly, is not so much competing with Alibaba as they are competing with each of the sellers that are using Alibaba marketplaces um, uh, in order to get to their customers. And uh, JD, by following the traditional first party retail model, um, really is more comparable to a, um, to a Costco or a Sam's Club or a Walmart where there are economies of scale to being the largest retailer because the bigger you are, uh, the more, um, uh, the more negotiating power you have over your supply chain and uh, retail is, is famously a, a razor thin margin business. Um, which means basically all the spoils go to the market share winner. Uh, and if you're not the market share winner, you're, you're basically getting squeezed um, to, to zero margins. Uh, so JD is, is, is owning a first party retail model um, in contrast to Alibaba and marketplaces. Uh, Pindodo, I, I'm uh, a lot of folks um, focus on the market share gains that they have had. And they focus on this direct-to-supplier relationship that they've created uh, between the customers um, and, uh, and the suppliers of goods. And they tell a great story because they say, hey, you have these suppliers, you know, they prefer to move in bulk. So we get to cut out the retail middleman because we're able to aggregate our buyers and you know these people then get the discounted you know purchase price together. It encourages it, it encourages buyers to bring more buyers with them. And I don't know. Every time there's been a new retail model that sounds a little too cute to be true, uh, I'm a little suspicious. And the the main reason I'm suspicious uh, on on a Pindodo is I mentioned to you earlier about uh, scaling marketing versus scaling product. And pricing promotions is, as far as I can tell, the number one driver of growth at Pindodo. And they have taken lots of share from Alibaba uh, over the past couple of years, but their growth rate has been evaporating. And I think they, are, have, the, uh, they have the potential to be my next shining example of company that slows marketing spend, sees revenue grind to a halt, and then gets all confused because they're like, well, hold on, where's our margin? And it's like, well, you're not growing anymore. Uh, it turns out that you were completely a marketing-fueled product, not a product-fueled product. Fueled product. Uh, so until we see more scale on their underlying uh, product model work, I'm, uh, I'm on the sidelines on that one. Gotcha. Um, yeah, so it 
it's interesting. Like, what are your thoughts on kind of Tencent, uh, like WeChat Pay versus Alipay? Um, do you think that there's like plenty of room for both? Or like, how do you even think about Tencent um, in terms of, I know they've had a lot of back and forth with Alibaba in the past, just some thoughts on Tencent as well. I got plenty of thoughts. Uh, <laughs> so so in, in Alibaba, you're, you're really owning high market share, high cash flow businesses. And with Tencent, uh, sure, you know, they, they generate, you know, all, all sorts of good cash flow too. Um, but we really look at it more of uh, investing in an investment fund. So uh, Tencent has been one of, well, arguably the best uh, allocator of capital uh, to uh, Chinese-based businesses. And it's funny to me that there are China ETFs that have you know, 25 random Chinese companies in them. You only need to own Tencent uh, because in Tencent, you are getting the capital allocators that are on the ground, that are investing from the seed stage to the late stage to the public stage. Uh, this is another example of like the government is not stopping Tencent from going and making minority investments, whereas Facebook is hiring lobbyists and making sure that they have coverage to continue to you know make new investments in, in other new companies. And so it's a great, I mean, I have a lot of, um, uh, Tencent is a, is a very diversified holding company uh, is, is how we think about it. And we value the company on a some of the parts basis. And because the, the Chinese uh, market prices are historically a bit more volatile in the US, it's not a very difficult stock to trade over time because it will simply trade at too big of a discount to the sum of its parts. Uh, granted, the visibility into each of those parts is a bit murky. Uh, but for the most part, the track record of the company has done enough to win our confidence that, you know, Pony Ma has done such an incredible job allocating capital that we're excited to have him continue to allocate uh, our capital as shareholders. Love it. So are there any other Chinese companies that U.S.-based investors should be aware of um, just, to, just to kind of round out the, the China discussion? Yeah, those are all the big ones. I will say we continue to be on the hunt. Uh, on the on the small to mid cap size, uh, the star market, which is you know, China over time trying to create their own Nasdaq, is in the very early days. It's mostly a lot of uh, overpriced biotech companies. There is one company that we did own, but we sold it because of the mania that happened in January. Uh, there's a company, Tiger Brokers, our up fintech holding uh, group. The the simplest way to think about it is the uh, uh, the the Robinhood. Um, uh, uh, but it's, it's actually much more nuanced than that. Uh, I think they're taking an approach much like interactive brokers of winning a smaller number of higher quality trading clients. Uh, they're doing very clever things uh, to unlock uh, employees that are part of um, uh, ESOP plans that have options in their companies, but for some reason or another don't have access to liquidities because of the access to exchanges that they have. Uh, so they're doing a lot more, um, I think, quality work uh, than, than, than Robinhood. Robinhood is just trying to win as many human humans as humanly possible uh, without necessarily thinking through uh, the different types of, of traders and investors out there and building a specific suite of solutions for them. Interesting. So did, when you were uh, going through your due diligence process in Tiger, did you happen to look at Futu? I did. Futu, uh, they were slightly bigger, uh, which was fine. Um, I think my, my one gripe 
was that they, again, they, they leaned into as many people as possible, as opposed to um, higher uh, activity um, trading on their platforms. So I, I, I like using interactive brokers as an example, um, because the founder there is, is pretty candid. Uh, he's still involved. Uh, and he speaks a lot about what what makes for a good brokerage company versus a bad brokerage uh, company. And you'd rather have one highly active trader than 10 low activity traders because brokerage is already a fairly uh, low margin, a fairly high capital intensity uh, industry. So you got to be careful investing in brokerage anyway. And with the market this hot and everyone trading everything, you know, now is not one of the best times to be investing in brokerages. But to to go back to the Tiger versus uh, Futu comparison, uh, Tiger's clients traded at almost double the rate on average than Futu clients, and what that means long term for you know their potential margin expansion and cash flow profiles is much stronger than um, than what Futu is doing. Interesting. Um, yeah. Th- so thanks for breaking down China. So before kind of wrapping up, are there any other companies in your portfolio that you're pretty excited about these days or um, things that you've been looking at? It's difficult. This is, I've been, um, I've been caught saying a couple of times that this is one of the worst moments in history to invest in innovation because it is as high priced as it's ever been. Uh, You have a lot of uh, this rushing uh, to the public markets of, of so many companies means you have a lot of inexperienced management teams that have no idea how to communicate with shareholders. Uh, I thought the, 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 I think it was the New York Times this morning, did a decent job of saying, you know, one of the easy ways to fix SPACs is uh, to, to make them, uh, to not allow them uh, to put out these irresponsibly built uh, forecasts, um, which a company going through an IPO uh, is not uh, legally allowed to do. And uh, the thing about an experienced management team is even without there being rules about the things that you're not supposed to do, they know that there are things that you shouldn't do, even if there isn't a rule against it. And there is more marketing noise around innovative companies right now that are uh, building product. I, I, I do love blockchain as a long-term technology, but the products that are currently being built on it are, you know, pretty beginner. Um, there are a number of, you know, underlying technology trends that are very critical for long-term investors over the next 20 years, but the current set of hyped up businesses and products that are on top of them is a pretty shit selection. Like, I feel like we're, you know, mid to late nineties and I'm being given like AOL and Netscape and, you know, some other stuff I don't really feel all that good about, uh, as my investment options. Uh, but I know that the internet itself is going to enable a lot of really cool investment opportunities for me going forward. I just don't know that we're, that we're in a moment in time. And, and look, I mean, look at our portfolio, our four largest positions, 40% of our portfolio are all five to $700 billion market cap companies with a ton of cash flow uh, that are strengthening and, you know, growing their own businesses. And like, a, you know, taking us back to the beginning of this conversation in investing, you get to put your money where your mouth is. And those are the only places in the market that I am seeing right now 
that are really great for allocation. And I hope and look forward to getting my, my background is in growth equity investing. I've invested from into a $10 million company into a trillion dollar company. And, you know, there's a lot of, you know, potentially big returns that can be made by investing in those several hundred million dollar companies and several billion. But um, the market has not given me a lot of good choices right now. Yeah, I'd say that's pretty contrarian to say one of the worst times to invest in innovation. Are there any like companies that you're particularly uh, suspect about or, um, yeah, just be curious to hear some examples of that. I don't manage a short book, so I don't get to put my money where my mouth is uh, on the, on the, on the bad or suspect company side. Um, I'll say that up front. Um, Do I want to pick on a specific company? Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to take the high road on this one. (laughs) You know, unless I had a short, you got to get someone on here that uh, has their short book and is willing to talk it. And I think that's a good way to approach that. Okay. Fair enough. Um, Yeah. So thanks so much, Robert. I always end with a, a closing question. Are there any daily habits that have contributed to your success? wish I knew you ended with that. I would, um, I'm, I'm less concerned about uh, daily habits than I am weekly habits. And uh, in my weekly habits, um, there is uh, blocked time for uh, nothing, uh, which allows, you know, the sort of the curiosity to follow its course. And uh, usually that happens when the market is not open. Um, so the first few hours on a Saturday morning is always sort of fascinating to me because it's always unscheduled time. Uh, and I, I sort of allow the curiosity to just jump into whatever, because the, the mind and body are, are very you know, complex systems uh, that are thinking and processing things that the brain is not consciously working through. Uh, and so having some amount of time built into your week for those inner suspicions to reveal themselves is... Uh, one of my favorite things. Yeah, that's super interesting. I'm sure we could talk about that for a while, but uh, <laughs> thanks so much, Robert, for coming on. I uh, really appreciate your time. Cool. Yeah. Great speaking with you, Ryan. Thank you so much for listening to the Investing City podcast. It really means the world to us. And before you go, we have a proposition. So please leave a review on iTunes and 